I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Hi, Susie, I have come to know you in the last few weeks and admire you dearly. And um, my listeners know nothing about you. So tell them a tiny bit. So I'm Susie. I'm 23 years old. I live in London and I love it. Come on, who loves London? I do. I genuinely love London. I think. Oh my God. Okay. You see, you see, guys, I told you optimistic, very optimistic person. No, I, I love London too. I'm just joking. Sorry to interrupt you. No, not at all. I think just as a place, got, and you go to New York and the ceilings, the buildings are so tall that you can't see the, the sky. And I think, oh no, that's too much. And then you go to LA when everyone's just in their own individual houses and no one's really out and about. And I feel like London's just a good balance of people coming in and out and every place is so different. You know, I live in Southwest London, which is really lovely. But then you go to East London and it's so cool and so trendy and there's so many different things going on. So yeah, I love London. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So you're, you're 23, you live in London. I live in London and I, yeah, I, I currently work in marketing, which I really love. But I'm also a massive foodie. And I have really, I think my love for food, I mean, this is kind of my story, I guess, but my love for food has stemmed from a bad relationship with food in the first place. So to put it into context, I now own on, as a free, on, the, on the side on, for freelance, I own Susie's Larder, which is my catering business. Nice. Yeah, which is good. And I love it. I get to cook for my friends and bring people together and have amazing conversations and eat delicious food. And it's such a pleasure to be able to do that because for so long, I didn't let myself do any of that. So when I was 17, I fell, I don't, I don't really know how it all started, but I was bullied when I was about eight years old at school. And I remember just being cut out. And I think as a result, I developed quite bad anxiety. And I've always been a people pleaser. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, the sort of British in me. <laughs> I really like people liking me. It makes me happy. <laughs> and I don't really know what to do when they don't. And so I think then being bullied and being excluded age eight was really tough. And you're, when you're young, you're learning so much about yourself and you're trying to figure out who you are as a person. And so, yeah, that's what happened. And then, and then I went to my next school and I suddenly got all this confidence and, and things were good. And I was suddenly put in a place where I was good at a couple of things. So that gave me some confidence. And I had blonde hair and blue eyes. And some of the boys thought I was quite pretty, which was, again, gave me a lot more confidence, but I think made me focus on slightly the wrong things. And when I was 17, I, I don't know what it was. I felt like I was losing control of my life. And I think I had fallen out with a couple of friends at school or something. Um, and I developed really bad social anxiety again. And I'd sort of been a bit kind of like umming and ahhing about my weight. I think there was never any education at school around, you know, that it's normal. You go through hormones, you put on a bit of weight, you get boobs, like all this kind of stuff. And I remember one boy coming up to me at school. He was a couple of years older than me and telling me that I looked like a whale. 
and it was awful. That's not good. It hurts. Yeah, it, it really sucked. And I think as well in life, you know, you always remember the bad things. You never remember the good things. So that kind of stuck with me for ages. And then I sort of, you know, lost my confidence a bit and things weren't really working out with my friends because that's what happens when you grow as, you know, friendships change and all of this kind of stuff. And the one thing I remember being able to get control over was my food. And I think that there was kind of the control side of things. And then also this side of things, I was made to feel so insecure in my own body. and. Yeah. So that kind of the two sort of played hand in hand. Anyway, I started to kind of gain a bit more control and become a bit more obsessive. And I think I found excuses all the time. I was like, I, you know, I don't need to eat because I'm doing this or X, Y, and Z. And I'm a very busy person. So I'm quite good at, at finding an excuse to not do things. And without realizing, I was then made head girl in my last year of school, which was amazing, but it was hugely stressful. And it came with like a massive pressure well. And I think I kind of held it together for my last year. A lot of my friends came to ask me if anything was wrong. And I was so in denial. And I remember just saying no and getting so defensive because I got told that my head girlship would be taken away from me if I didn't sort of put on weight. So I was then terrified. How much did you weigh then? Oh, I don't remember numbers specifically, but barely, I mean, you know, I'd lost, I'd lost quite a lot of weight. And at the school that I was at, we used to get weighed every six weeks. And that was just common practice. <laughs> That's really weird. It's like, like managing cattle a bit. <laughs> it, it was literally, it was literally like that. And you sort of have this woman and she shout out your name and you had to go up and get weighed. And I remember that it gave me such bad anxiety because they used to then weigh me more because, you know, I was losing weight and they were worried about me. And I remember going and buying these weights off Amazon and putting them around my stomach so that I weighed more so that I sort of, you know, heavier. Yeah. I mean, it was so, and I I was so in denial. I didn't think I had anything wrong, but I equally, I think, you know, you have that subconscious. I knew something wasn't quite right, but... I didn't want to be that girl labeled anorexia, which is so sad because there was such a lack of education around the whole thing and there was no support around it. And I felt like I was being punished for something that I really couldn't help. And people were sort of being mean to me and, and that kind of thing. And then it made me feel more insecure about what it was that was going on. So therefore I just denied it more. And actually, I think that if there'd been a bit more love and support and cushioning around the situation, then maybe I just would have thought, okay, yeah, this is what's going on and I can talk about it. So, 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 let, so let me understand the picture here. You're 17 year old. You're 17 yeah. years old. You're beautiful. You are uh, the head girl in school. But suddenly someone comes to you and says, you're a little overweight. Uh, wait, I'm not going to say the words that he said. It's horrible. And that, that one comment or maybe a few of them or whatever just flips your life upside down. So now you're telling yourself that you shouldn't eat and that you're in control. And by doing that, you're losing weight, you're losing weight, you're losing weight. You're getting to a point where it's really serious to the point that school starts to intervene. It adds more stress to you. A few of your friends start to go like, something's wrong with her. I don't want to be around that. And you're down that spiral just because somehow someone commented and said, you don't look good. Even though, I mean, if people look at you and, and you know, today, 
you must have been gorgeous. I mean, you're, today you look amazing, but you must have been a gorgeous 16-year-old. You know, you have those like features of the most the, the typical definition of uh, of a, of a, you know of beauty, really. You know, bl- blonde. You know, <laughs> not, uh, cutie eyes. You know, you're gonna embarrass me. No, but I'm, I, it's hard to describe this to people on a podcast. So I need them to see what I'm seeing now. And, and, and still, you, you, you start to see yourself as something is wrong with me. How often do you think this happens in our schools today? I think this happens all the time. And I think that it's becoming more apparent now because maybe there's just more education around the matter. And so people are kind of talking about a bit more. But I think, yeah, so much. I mean, my, my little brother, he is, he's 19 and he just left the same school. And I remember him calling me like three years ago. And there was a year where he had like five friends who he, he would ring me about and say, you know, I want to look after them and I, I don't know how to help. What can I do to help? And I think that it's, yeah, it's just there's so much pressure as well in our society for young girls to look a certain way. Like we spend way too much time scrolling through our phones, seeing these kind of ideals of what people look like. And actually a lot of it is rubbish, really. I mean, you know, things get edited and changed and all that kind of stuff. But also there's just so much focus on on the outside. It's like, well, what's going on on the inside? And this is why I love podcasts. Sorry, this is slightly going off, but you get to really listen to people's voices and you don't know what they look like and you can just hear them for who they are rather than just oh I see that photo of so and so and I feel like I should be a certain way and I think that there's just a lack of kind of a focus on people's like personalities and their drive and their energy and their enthusiasm and whatever it might be so yeah I think it's tough it's so tough so you you took you took this being the achiever that you are, and you said, okay, I'm going to take control of my life. But that's not always the way it, it plays. Huh? Others will just dwindle and collapse. Others will, uh, will just overeat. Uh, others will, you know, uh, close down and, and, and stay away. And, and we would push some of them to the point of despair and loneliness, where, of course, one of the, of the biggest pandemics in my in my view of the world today is that it's the pandemic of suicide it's not COVID-19 it's the idea of teen depression teen suicide which is escalating uh, to, to all-time highs and, and as a matter of fact female suicide if people don't know is at an all-time high so suicide in females was not common at all in the early 20th century and now and now it's definitely on the how, how did you feel inside? I mean, you, you say that I felt I'm in control. You were in denial. You were pushing. I mean, were you at all aware that you had a problem? I, I knew something wasn't right. And basically what happens, a bit of biology behind it, but when you deprive your brain of food, you get this kind of vision in your own head and you see yourself as 70% bigger to what sees you. So I would look in the mirror and it was like going to the circus and you have those mirrors and they expand you or whatever. And I'd, I'd see normal Susie. And of course my friends were saying something completely different. So that's, that's the thing is this addiction can then actually morph like what you're actually seeing. And then that's the problem is that you can't see what's happening. And I think as well, I, I knew. And then when I left school, I remember I went on holiday with my friend and she's an amazing friend. I love her. But it was the worst holiday of my life <laughs> because I was out there and I was miserable. And her mom was trying to get me to eat 
pizza, pasta, whatever it was. And I couldn't do it. I just physically could not bring myself. And I remember coming back from that holiday and thinking, okay, it's not now that I don't want to eat the pizza in the past or whatever. It's actually that I physically can't make myself have this. And I remember walking back through my front doors at home, bursting into tears and just saying to my mum, mum, I really need your help now. Um, And I think, yeah, I mean, I'm going to cry, but I remember it was just kind of like, Finally, I'd, it was leaving school. I had this weight of being head girl left off my shoulders. I had no expectations, nothing to live up to. And I thought, yeah, that's it now. Now I need to accept what's going on. And I need my mommy. <laughs> and I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry if, I, if, I, if that is not a good memory, but tell me about that moment when you recognize that you need help. How, how do you move? Because I think this really is the breaking point. Huh? How do you move from... I've got this, I've got this, I've got this too. Oops, I don't have this. I really need help. What triggers that in us? It's a really good question. I think, I think you, do, you do get to breaking point. And I think a lot of people who, who go through things like this, like people think they're weak, but they're not. They're actually really, really strong. And I always said to myself, if you're strong enough to put yourself in a position like this, you're strong enough to get out of it. And I think that... Yeah, I don't know what it was at recognizing. I think that I suddenly saw my life. There was a point where I was losing a lot of weight and I was, I was thin, but I was okay. I could still see my friends and I managed to kind of get away with life. And then there was a point where I didn't have the energy for life anymore. Like I, I couldn't even lift up my hand to brush my own hair. Like my mom had to help me do it. And all the things wow. that I, yeah, it, it was insane. Like I just lost all sense of, I was cross. I was grumpy. I would have like chronic anxiety attacks, just feel chaotic and anything sort of lifting myself up off the sofa was difficult. And I think that I really thought that by gaining control of my life, it would make me happier. And by losing weight and not being a whale, whatever it was, it would make me happier. And actually it just stripped me of all the things that I really loved doing. And I was kind of left with nothing. So it's weird. It's such a false kind of perception. So, so, so we're now at a, at a very interesting turning point. I, I, you walk into your mother's, you're sort of stressed, crying, uh, un, unable to handle this anymore. You say, mommy, I need your help. What happens then? So when I first accepted it, it got worse for a bit. And I think finally I was just dealing with what was going on. And then it was weird because... I then went to see the doctor and my mum, my parents were amazing. You know, they, they took me to the doctors. I had therapy, all this kind of stuff. And as soon as I was diagnosed with it, I kind of felt like that was the new me and I could then play that role, which was weird. And my mum would sort of make dinner at home or whatever. And she'd say, you know, Susanna, you have to have this. And I was fiercely independent. I was like, no, I don't have to have that because I have anorexia now. And it was really- <laughs> Yeah, look at me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. this new me. You, you have to deal with the new me. It was so weird. And I remember kind of getting away. And I don't know, I don't know whether this was a good thing. And, and every family handles things in different ways. I've had friends whose parents get really involved and really take control of the situation. But for me, I remember saying to my mum, like, I'm going to be an adult at the end of this and I need to be able to take control of this. So my parents tried, my dad, I remember my dad just saying to me, darling, why don't you just have a bowl of porridge? And I was like, dad, it doesn't work like that. No. (laughs) And he would, you know, I mean, my dad, I'm such a dad's girl. I'm the only girl. I have two brothers. 
and I love him so much. And he would kind of just come sit on the end of my bed. And he never, he's, he's not a big chatter. My mom's a big chatter, but my dad's kind of quiet. And he would sit and just stare at me and, and just give me a hug. And it would break my heart. Yeah. I love I think, him. Oh, Isn't he's that so what we're great. supposed to do? <laughs> oh, so, so, and, and, then, and then that hug over time, I believe mm. is what really makes the difference, right? So, so, so the idea is the only person that can actually help you through that time, surprisingly, is you, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. It's you who has to take charge. And I think once I accepted it, I knew it was going to be a short-term thing. It was weird. Like I remember being in the bath and my mum coming in and I'd just been for a kind of bone scan and done all this kind of biology stuff. And the doctor rang up my mum and he said, your daughter could die this week if she carries on the oh way. Um, so my mum came in in floods of tears. And it was weird because my mum's very strong, very, very strong. And I've never really seen her cry. And she came in and she said, she said, you know, told me the news of what the doctor had said. And I started laughing. I just didn't, I was like, no, I'm not, this isn't going to happen to me. Like I'm pretty invincible. It's not going to happen. And then I kind of digested that situation. And I remember being in my bed one night and about to go to sleep and all my friends, oh, this was it, all my friends, you were asking about the moment, this is the moment. All my friends were going to a party, a dinner party, and he's one of my best friends and all, all my friends were going to be there and it was going to be great. And I remember ringing up and asking his mum what they were going to have for dinner. And she said, I don't know, like pasta or whatever. And I was like, oh, I, now I can't come because I can't eat pasta, so I can't come. And I then remember being so sad and seeing photos of all of them together. And that evening when I went to bed, I was like sitting in my bed and I just had this, this moment. And I was like, I'm done now. I'm finished with this. It's restricting me. It's ruining my life. And I'm going to sort this out. And the next day was a new day. It didn't mean that it was rocket science and it was bloody hell was it trial and error. <laughs> I have good days and bad days and relapses and whatever it was. But it was a new day and I just thought, you know, whatever it takes, I'm gonna get there. And there were days and after that where I thought, oh, I can't do this anymore and this kind of stuff. But um yeah, I just decided I was finished with it and I wanted my life back. I, I wish we can we can copy that moment because I'm 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 certain that people listening to us they either went through this or are going through this or they know someone who's going through this. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and it's, it's interesting how your story shows me so many of the challenges we face as humanity because one, this goes unnoticed by the person experiencing it. It goes ignored by the people around them. It, it takes too long. And, and in reality, you know, it's, it's surprisingly all about a realization, a realization that I don't have to be this way. I don't have to be this hard on myself. I don't have to be, uh, you know, obsessive about my look. I don't have to be, you know, in denial if you want. It's that choice. And I don't know how to replicate that choice for others. But I think, I think what I want to say is if someone hears you saying this and looks at you right now and how bubbly you are and how alive and how motivated and how driven and you know you grilled me in your on your podcast last week and you know you're you're just the example if you ask me coming to this from that is really what everyone should aspire to i think there's yeah it's so it's so difficult and i i don't know how you know you master that like i'm still mastering it but it gets, it definitely gets easier as you get older. 
also like surrounding yourself around people that make you feel positive and make you feel happy is so essential. And the other thing is just a bit of perspective and life. We take it for granted. You always think it's not going to be me. I'm not going to be the person that ends up in that bad situation or whatever, but you just don't know. And every day is a blessing. So if you can, you have to try and focus on the good things. Don't focus on what you don't have because you know someone else has already taken. So there's no point in trying to be someone else. And I think it's it's so hard, but it's just looking internally and being like, right, this is what I got. And what I got is great. So I've got to work with it now. A week ago, I interviewed Kristen Neff, which, you know, works on self-compassion. And, and you know, she was saying that our uh, our Western approach to self-esteem is what leads us to the to the pandemic of bullying. Because self-esteem is all about in the West, it's sadly defined as I am better than the other person. So, so the only way I can feel good about myself is I'm is if, is if I'm a little bit better or a lot better than my peers. And so, bullying is one way of saying, you see, I am stronger than you, right? And and that you know that pandemic of bullying, of course, is expanded heavily. Uh, with the online presence of of, uh, of social media and so on and so forth, if you if you look back at at that moment now, now that you're much wiser, much stronger, that you've gone through that experience, how would you have handled that bully, knowing what you know now? I think I would have turned around to him and said, "Thank you so much for your opinion, but I don't really care." <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, and told him to bugger off. <laughs> And I just don't know, like, I think, you you know, that a massive lesson there. And I think it's taught me, I mean, I would never, there are days where I think, oh God, you know, it would have been great if I, if this hadn't happened to me, but every other day, I think it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Oh, wow. Tell me more about this. Empathy is life's biggest blessing. And I think that you, you know, we have to remember that everybody's been through different things, faced different challenges. So everybody's problems are, you have to put them into perspective and they're relative to the individual person, but being able to kind of just say, yeah, that's worrying you. And I get that. And that's cool. And maybe you don't get on that wavelength and you don't really understand, but just appreciating that person and offering that support, I think has been amazing. And, and it's allowed me to be open and accept my failures and all my fault and all this kind of stuff. And that's actually brought me closer to everybody in my life. And I think, you know, we, we undervalue human interaction and we're so obsessed with, you know, like you and I were saying last week, and you always think that materialistic goods or whatever it might be or in your job is going to make you happy. And actually, if you really think about it, what makes you happy is like having a laugh with the people you really love and doing it when you're even closer. It's, it's magic. That's all it is. It's magic. One last question, and then I will take you to a very interesting other place. But if now, now that you've gone through this, if you meet someone, so I'm, I'm asking because I think this is the behavior that everyone should show if they see someone going through trouble. Huh? And by the, by the way, uh, the trouble is not just being anorexic. It could be anything. Huh? So you could, you could, you, we have so many signs of people in depression, you know, in, uh, in fear and isolation and despair and so on and so forth, especially in, in the teenage years. I think it's a pandemic, as I said. Uh, what would you what would you do today? So if if my you know niece uh, is going through this now, and you met her, and and you can see the signs, what would you do? I think this is the other thing is that I'm lucky enough because I've come out the other side, so I have this confidence to talk about it and to whatever you know. But like you have to remember, I remember really clearly that when I was in that situation, you just don't, and sometimes you don't want people to help you. But what you do need is you need someone you can trust 
And I wish I'd had someone five years older than me who was, you know, I thought was really nice. He came to me and just said, you got this and it's going to be okay. And that's what I would do. I think I've, I've offered my advice or not even advice, but just like being there as a friendly face or, a, you know, a phone call. And I'd say to your niece, like, give me a call. Let's chat about it. Cause I get it. I've been there too. I know what it's like. Anything weird you think you're doing, I would have done it too. <laughs> and I think you just feel so alone. And then it's like a friend in the situation. And as soon as you can have a laugh about it, it just becomes so much easier. Um, so just being there, offering myself as a friend. Great advice. I, I, I always, I always say the answer to all problems is love, right? If you yeah, just, right uh, if you just uh, show up and say, Hey, by the way, I'm here if you need to talk. And um, by the way, you're wonderful. And that's it really. Uh, you know, because, because believe it or not, uh, everyone going through this is absolutely wonderful. As a matter of fact, it's almost a sign of how wonderful people are when, when life really affects them that heavily. I think that's, you know, th- those who are oblivious or, un- you know, insensitive or bullyish or whatever, they don't go through this as often because they're just not, you know, in touch with themselves, I think a little. That's the thing. And I think, you know, I had people who tried to help me and, and, and like, I would never blame anyone because there's no rule book, you know, you don't really know what to do. A friend loses their husband. How do you deal with that? You know, there's no guide. But I think one thing that I really appreciated was not someone saying, you know, attacking me and saying, this is what's going on. You need to get help, blah, blah, blah. It was the people who came to me and just said, you know, when you want to have a chat, I'm here for you and it's going to be okay. And that, those are the people that I turned to when I decided I was ready to talk about it. And I think that's pretty amazing. Okay. So you've got this. Here is the other one. Here's the other one you have not gotten. You're, you're a millennial. Last week when we were talking on your podcast, we spoke about how mad it is for you guys to make choices, to cope with the speed, to, uh, to uh, still in a way fit in if you want. Do you feel that or have you given up on that already? I'm giving up. I give on, up on it more and more every day. Why not be different? You know, being normal is a bit boring. It's good to be different. And I think for, so as you get older, I don't know what it is, but maybe it's just because like life is such old, an experience. Old, old, <laughs> old and you don't fit in the same sentence yet, but... Uh, but <laughs> older, 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 older. older. Okay, okay. So, so how does it feel like? What, what are the current stresses? So now, now that we've gone through teens, you're in your 20s, I, uh, you know, most people say, Hey, I've, I've passed sort of, I actually think twenties are the craziest time of your life. It's like, you can really go really bad if you, if you, I mean, they're fun, but you can really go wrong on your twenties. So in your twenties, and I know I sound like a grandpa now I'm not, but what is it like? What are the stresses? So I think the biggest stress is Lots of my friends have boyfriends. Finding a boyfriend is sometimes a bit of a stress and thinking, oh, will I ever find someone that not only loves me, but that I can really love? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So that's a stress. And also I think the job market so much more than obviously, you know, beforehand, but it is a stress. And, and I think people, you know, it's, it's not about having the most amazing job or any of that kind of stuff, but it's stability too. And I, I think that is pretty stressful at the moment. And it would be interesting to see how we come out of it. But those are probably the biggest stresses in my life. Do, do, do you think love is more difficult for you guys than it was for us, you know, 20, 30 years ago? Yeah, a hundred percent. I'll tell you why. Okay. <laughs> because I think we, I have indecisionitis, which is something I've diagnosed myself with. 
And I am always trying to find, I'll ring up my mum and say, mum, I don't know what to do. Do I go left on the street? Do I go right? Do I go up the middle? She's like, darling, it doesn't matter. Just make a decision. And you know, each, each road is going to throw you different obstacles and one might be better for a bit. And then the other one, I don't know, might be better later on. And we're so obsessed with perfection because that's what we see. You know, we see it online, we see it on our phones, whatever it might be. And I think then that's what we crave in all the decisions we make. And also we have too much choice as well. Like now we're literally given a dating app. I think like you said, and you know, people come pop up every single day. And I remember my mom, when, when she met my dad, she rang him and she just said, um, let's go to the pub and on their home phones with the dialer. And he hmm. said, yep, great, I'll meet you there. And they had no mobiles. All they had was to trust each other that they would meet each other there on time, whatever it was, four days later and no communication in between. And I think now we're presented with so many different options that it becomes confusing. And we always think that the grass is greener, but actually it's, it's not. And I think only hindsight can make you realize that. So yeah, I think love's pretty hard. <laughs> you, know, you know that the economic theory proves that. I, I wrote about that a, a few weeks ago in one, in one of my future books. And, and the idea is it's a supply and demand uh, economics, basically. I, I know people don't want to hear logic around love, but the truth is, when there is more supply out there, every, every boy that pops up on that dating app is worth slightly less because it's com- he is compared to so much more supply. It almost feels like, why would I settle for this one if there are 200 others I haven't you know, uh, examined yet? And, and I think it's, the question is, is really, of course, on the other side, you know, the, the boys that you meet are making the same you know, interesting analysis of like, oh my God, she's so cute, but is there, is there, is there one that is cuter? Oh my God, she's, you know, uh, very fit, but do I actually want to see if a, a more curvy one is, uh, is more interesting and so on and so forth. And I think that economic challenge is making it almost a chronicle dissatisfaction. It's turning into why would I ever be satisfied with anything if there is so much more on display? That's the thing. A hundred percent. And, and even like now I, I always think you should have no regrets, but I look back on, on missed opportunities with exactly what you're saying. And I think, I don't know, advice to myself would definitely be if anyone takes your fancy just a tiny bit, give it a go and give it everything because actually you just don't know. And nobody's perfect too. Like if someone makes you 95% happy, then that's pretty good. I think. <laughs> Okay, if you if you're listening, Mister, uh, she's talking <laughs> about you. <laughs> oh okay. no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, my, my advice actually is on, is actually the opposite. My my advice is to restrict the supply demand equation by saying I'm only going to I'm I'm going to go through the window shopping, but I'm only going to settle for what actually is valuable. So so interestingly. You know, if you, if you think about the dating marketplace today, sort of like a bit like Amazon, where there is a billion products, or I don't know how many millions of products out there, that actually makes you say, look, it's going to take me a little longer to browse through them, but I probably will find what I want if I persist. Okay. And, and it's that interesting balance of what I call the Rolls-Royce strategy of saying, look, and I, I say that with respect, uh, so, so please don't get me wrong, no <laughs> test drive, huh? no test drive until I'm sure you're a viable pa- buyer. And, and so basically you're going out there meeting people, but you're just meeting people, as I always say, to find your best friend. And when you find your best friend, then maybe he's qualified to enjoy more of you. 
And I think this sort of responsibility resides more on the female side because I think the psyche of the male is to test drive everything. So, uh, so think about that. I think uh, I'm, I'm, it's not the solution, but I, this is where my head is on that supply-demand equation. Well, I'll tell you what is that my advice hasn't got me very far just yet, so I think I'm going to be taking yours from now on. <laughs> Yeah, I I uh, I don't know what to tell you, Susie. I think uh, you know. I I look at you and the and the and the conversations we've had so far, and and how wonderful and how inwardly uh, uh, retros- in, in, in introspective you are. And I think you would be one lucky bastard. I think. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I'm 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 saying here, guys, if you're listening. I'm going to be uh, tagging Susie when this podcast comes out on social media. So start, uh, start chasing her. And I Susie, promise I make good brownies. <laughs> <laughs> Susie, when they, start, when they start chasing you, break the supply-demand equation by being scarce, right? Because I'll tell you uh, out there, ladies, by being more precious, you're valued a lot more. Um, okay, so... One more question, but before I do, I'll make my normal announcement. I'm, I'm absolutely certain that because you guys are still here, you're enjoying this conversation and loving you know, the, the views of Susie as much as I am. So do me a favor, click that five stars on Apple Podcasts because Apple has a monopoly on podcasts and they will want those five stars if they were to tell others that you like this. Uh, also share uh, on social media and uh, make it your task in life to try and spread good messages. Uh, to the rest of the world so that we can get to a billion happy. So Susie, now now uh, 23, now the worst is behind us. Dating's not really great yet, but we'll get that sorted. Yeah, we'll get PMA, that stands for positive mental attitude. There you go. I'll, I'll, I'll make it one of my tasks in life to find you that amazing guy, like, uh, you know, arranged <laughs> marriages and all of the past. But anyway, so, so the, 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 you're, you're doing so many things. Huh? So you're, you're, you have your catering business, you're working in marketing, you have your podcast. Where is this taking? So five years down the line, where will we find Susie? Oh, it's a good question. I'm just going to go big because it's fun and why not? You know, it's good to dream big. I would love to have two cookbooks and they're going to be the Susie's Larder series. And hopefully they'll be inspired by different continents. I'd love an Asian one and maybe a European one to start off with. I would love to have appeared once on Saturday Morning Kitchen and to have done a little demonstration. And what else? I'd, I'd really like to have helped a couple of people and to, or just one person and for people to feel they can contact me and to just be, yeah, sharing myself and making friends and hopefully helping them. That would be a good place to be in. That is so wonderful. Okay. So your, your target is not five years. I think you can have one cookbook in two years, can't you? I think everyone listening, you buy Susie's book, cookbook just because she's so wonderful. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm... It comes with a free hug. <laughs> it comes with a free hug as well. So, you know, I'll, I'll buy one. Susie, I'm so, so, so grateful that you're so openly sharing this with the world. I really find value in, in telling everyone that we can come out of those tough situations. And I think we can come out when we make up our mind to come out. I, I think the main turning point that I wanted to share with everyone is that, the, that, that, that w- you come out of tough times when you decide you and you choose to come out of tough times. And from there, it's not an easy journey, but it happens, yeah. it unfolds. 
I'm so, so grateful that you're sharing this openly. I think the whole world should know about those stories. I think everyone should send you a virtual hug. And I'm really, really grateful for your time, Susie. Well, honestly, Mo, like your podcast has been the most amazing thing and it's got me through like bad times anyway. And also for anyone listening, Mo will share me on social media. And if you ever want to have a chat, I'm here. So Such a wonderful person. <laughs> thank you, Susie. Oh, thank you. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.